0: All right, Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're going to be headed. So, you guys know by now, as we've studied through the book of Hebrews up to this point, that this letter is written to a group of people who have been persecuted. They were persecuted. In Jerusalem, therefore, they were dispersed. That's where the word uh, diaspora comes from. They were dispersed, sent out through all of the area of Judea and even beyond. So as these believers are sent away from Jerusalem, what happens is uh, the persecution actually follows them. They are continually persecuted, even though they've settled in new areas in Judea and throughout the Roman Empire. And so as the persecution begins to weigh on these who believe in Christ... The temptation is there for them to turn back to their old ways. To go back to the traditions which they have been delivered from by the blood of Jesus Christ. They were tempted to go back into all the things that were there in Judaism. And some of the wonderful traditions that would be brought up would be the the heroes of old, the Old Testament prophets, and the angels, the messengers of God, and, and Moses, and the high priest. And so this is all the traditions and the trappings that go along with this that they're tempted by. But what we've talked about now for several weeks in a row is the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. He is better than what, somebody might ask? Uh, Yes. He is better than all that and uh, beyond. More than we could possibly imagine, he is better than that. And so in chapter 1, verse 1, we looked at God making it clear through the pen of the writer that at various times, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, Jesus has superiority, preeminence. He is better than the prophets who were seen as the mouthpiece of God, but now we have in these last days Jesus is our mouthpiece. He is the word, the logos, the one who communicates to us, he is the word of God in the flesh. And so we have him being better than the prophets. He is then through chapter 1 and 2 we see better than the prophets, these are better than the angels. These messengers of God, And we notice this throughout scripture that God sends his angels as messengers. You think back to the book of Daniel. He is uh, greeted by Gabriel on multiple occasions who brings a message from God. And then you go to Mary and Joseph, given the word about the birth of Christ by the angel Gabriel as a messenger. And they're not only messengers of God, but they're also servants to God. And here's the beautiful thing. What we're told in these first two chapters is that while Christ was made a little lower than the angels, through his death, his resurrection, he is now seated far above them at the right hand of the Father. And so we, being in Christ, get to be seated with him, making these angels that they wanted to worship actually servants of us. Their creation, their purpose is to be servants we are the ones that they are actually called to serve, to help us, to aid us. And so Jesus is better than the angels is what we took away from those first two chapters. Now we're going to enter into uh, chapters three and four, where we see the, the subject matter is Jesus being better than Moses. Now, Moses, I want to be sure to point this out, is still to this very day looked at as almost godlike. They look to Moses as the very embodiment of the law, the giver of the law. I mean, this was Moses who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them through the Red Sea, across the wilderness, and so they still look at and revere Moses very highly, which is why when I go back to Israel, hopefully in 2024, I am buying myself a Guns and Moses t-shirt. I'm just throwing it out there. My favorite t-shirt I saw while I was there in 2017 was Guns and Moses. This is where they put their trust, right there. And so uh, what we find is Jesus being better than even the giver of the law, better than Moses, becomes the fulfillment of the law. He didn't just speak the law. He actually came to fulfill it. And by his own words, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 5 here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's getting ready to share with them that the law says, fill in the blank, but I say... And so he's going to show his superiority, his fulfillment of the law. But what he says before that is in verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verse 18, assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. But what he is saying is he is going to go to the nth degree to fulfill all of the law. Not just bits and pieces, not just nearly there, not even every letter, but every little tilde, every dot, every comma, he is going to fulfill the law. That's how dedicated God is to making sure his word comes to pass. He is a God of his word. And Jesus here is the fulfillment of the word of God. Now, all that leads us to chapter 3, verse 1, where we read, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling... Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. And so we see here in uh, this first verse that the letter is being written to holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So when we think about who this letter is being written to, it's to believers it's to those who believe in Jesus as the risen Messiah. And I, I bring that up to take a little aside that do you understand the purpose behind church is not what I believe for the longest time. And that is getting people saved. Get them in the door so we can get people saved. And even though there was some equipping taking place, time and time again the message was always crafted around Getting people saved. And I want to be clear to point out that's a good thing. Like seeing people come to know the Lord, getting to lead someone to Christ, it's a wonderful thing. But it's not actually the purpose of the church. The church's first purpose in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My job, the reason I've been called to be a pastor and a teacher, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What work? The evangelical outreach program of Woodlawn Chapel, of the church at large, is supposed to be uh, you. (laughs) You're it. You're the evangelists. You're the ones who have access into people's lives that I don't get access to. I don't run in those circles. You do. And so my job, my calling, is to equip you to go do the work of the ministry. So this letter is being written to the holy brethren, the partakers of the heavenly calling. He says then, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Two titles are given here for Jesus. He is the apostle. Now, the apostle, capital A, that word just means sent one. And so we see Jesus being sent from heaven as Yeshua, the Jehovah is salvation. He was sent to us for the purpose of salvation, willingly coming and giving himself on our behalf, which makes him now our high priest. What we saw in chapter 2 verse 17 was uh, that therefore in all things he had to become like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Big scary word, propitiation, that simply means payment that turns away wrath. His reason for Doing all that he did, forgiving all that he gave was to be our high priest, but then also to be our sacrifice. The blood of the lamb that that gave himself for us to be our propitiation. And when we look at the qualities of the lamb of God, he is merciful and he is faithful. He is merciful. He is not giving me what I do deserve. That's the definition of mercy. What I deserve, uh, hell and death. My sin has condemned me. Yet he is not giving me that. And he is also faithful at the same time. The Webster definition is steadfast and loyal. He's not going anywhere. And that's a great thing because if you're looking to me, I'm all over the place. I mean, I'm I'm in, I'm out, I'm this way, I'm that. I'm all over the place. I'm anything but steadfast and loyal. And yet here's Christ, immovable, the rock, not going anywhere. And so we continue to see he is loyal to his house as Moses was, was his, is what we pick up on here in verse 2. Now this house that is mentioned can be a physical location or it can also be a population, a, a group of people. Now for your uh, part one of Old Testament story time, I'm going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here in 2 Samuel, uh, David is the king of Israel and he's sitting in his paneled house Things are looking pretty good as he looks over his kingdom, and yet he's bothered. He's bothered because as he looks out, he sees God is still in the tabernacle, the now 400-year-old tabernacle that sits out there. It's basically God is hanging out in a ran-down double-wide. He's like, here I am in my beautiful palace, and God's hanging out in the double-wide trailer. Now, Sammy Kershaw loved the double-wide trailer. In fact, he had a queen who of his double-wide trailer, with the polyester curtains and the redwood deck. But this is not how God felt, or not how David felt about God being stuck out in the double wide. And so he looks out, he has this desire to actually build a house for God. And as he's talking with his buddy, Nathan the prophet, he's talking to him about this desire he has in his heart to build God a house. I love how Nathan answers, because he answers the way I answer far too often. Um, He doesn't pray about it. He doesn't think about it. He just says, go do all that's in your heart. The Lord be with you. And yet, um, that's not what God said at all. And so Nathan, the prophet, goes back home that night and the Lord says, look, I need you to go back to David and tell him no. Tell the king of all the land, your boss, the most powerful man in the land, tell him it's not going to happen. And here's why. Because he's a man of war. He's got blood on his hands. Now, to most of us, we go, wait a minute. So David, who's called by God to be a, a warrior, and I want to be clear to point that out. David was first and foremost a warrior. He was a sweet psalmist of Israel and wrote songs, but this dude was one bad motor scooter. I mean, he, the women would sing out, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. I mean, this guy was a, a warrior, and yet he was called by God to be that. He was the the very article that God used to to take down uh, cities that should have been turned towards God, but they turned away, and he sent David in to clean up the mess. So he did what God called him to, and now he can't build a house for God? Really? But here's the thing, what I love about our Lord and Savior, he didn't leave it there. He says in verse 11 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, the Lord tells you he will make you a house. You're a man of war. You can't build a house for me. I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to build you a house, David. He proceeds in the next verses to share with him the prophecy of the Messiah being in the line of David. Can you imagine? Like God so loves this man that he says, I'm going to build you something even better, something eternal. And so that's why when we look at the book of Matthew chapter 1, we see a genealogy because Jesus was in the line of David. And if that wasn't good enough through his stepfather's side for him to be in the line of David, if you go to Luke chapter 3, you get a different genealogy because it's the genealogy of his mother Mary, which is also from the, you guessed it, line of David. God making sure the word to David was fulfilled to build him a house. So here is Moses, a builder of a house. What house did Moses take part in building? He's referring to the tabernacle. And so you have the temple being built for the Holy Spirit to reside, and Moses built the tabernacle. And he was faithful to carry out the word of the Lord to build the temporary structure that they moved throughout the wilderness and set up, you guessed it, in the middle of the camp. That's important to understand when we see all those uh, words given about the tabernacle is that God wanted it to be right in the middle of his people. He wants the same thing for us, by the way. He wants to be right in the middle of our camp. He doesn't want to be off to the side. He doesn't want to be someone we think about every now and again. He wants all things to point to him, to look to him for answers, to be in the middle of our daily journey. This is God's desire to be in the middle of our camp. We continue in verse 3, "...for this one," speaking of Christ, "...who has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God." And verse 5, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. And so Moses was called to be the leader of Israel, to bring them across through the Red Sea. But he was simply carrying out what God had put on his heart. He was a faithful servant. The builder was God, the one who assembled to put it all together. And this is what these verses are saying to us, is that here you have just the servant. Who is greater? Is it the servant or is it the one giving all the direction, the one that is building, creating all things? And it is, of course, the builder. It is the one who is giving all of the direction. that's bringing all this together. And Christ is the one that's being pointed to as being the builder of his own house. In verse 6, Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. What we see is Christ is over his house, but where is his house actually at? Where does he reside? He resides in you and all of you. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says, It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The place the, the Lord, our risen Savior, has chosen to reside is in one of each and every one of us who believe, transforming us from the inside out. He came to tabernacle with us. Therefore, he wants to be involved in our daily lives. He wants to be in the middle. He decided to tabernacle and go along with us to help us to accomplish all that he's put out for us to do. Yet so often our tendency is to take things back into our own hands. I'm good, Lord. don't know that I need you right in the middle of all my stuff, everything I got going on. And so our our tendency is to want to pull back control. This is why Paul would write in Galatians chapter 3 to a group who were struggling with legalism, who wanted to have control. He writes there in chapter 3, verse 3, and he says, are you so foolish. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Are you so foolish to think that all that God has done, all he's delivered you from, that now in your flesh, you're going to finish this? You've completely walked away from all this that he's done in the spirit, that he's done uh, through us. And so the encouragement there is not to turn away because we think we can accomplish it in our own flesh, but instead to rely on the promise that we see played out in the resurrection. How can we know all this is true? Because the resurrection says that it is. This promise for him to not just simply tabernacle with us, but to someday he's going to raise us up just like he did his own body think about this. Jesus is sharing with the Pharisees. He's standing there on the temple courts, and he says, look, if you destroy this temple, in three days I'm going to build it back. And these guys looked at him like, you are crazy. It took 46 years to build this temple, and in three days you're going to rebuild it? Because they didn't understand that the temple was actually him in the flesh, that he was there. The very presence of God was there The temple was right before them. And that's what he wants to do in us. He wants to actually see resurrection happen in us so that we can have a temple someday, not just merely this tabernacle. Now we continue back in Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 95, verses 7 through 11. But the whole story that's being shared here actually refers us back to Numbers 13. So part two of our Old Testament journey, Numbers 13. Now, the book of Numbers, for most of you, you don't want to read it because it's just full of numbers. Not true. Numbers at the beginning, numbers at the end. Fantastic stories in the middle. Now, chapter 13, when we arrive there, what we see is the nation of Israel has been brought through the wilderness They're now getting ready to enter into the land. They're right there on the precipice. The Jordan River is there, and God has them send uh, 12 spies, one from each tribe, over to check things out. And they do just that. They cross the Jordan, the spies do. They check it out, and what they realize is this is everything God promised and more. A land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, grapes the size of basketballs. It doesn't actually say that in there. But in my mind, huge fruits and vegetables like this beautiful land is there for the taking. But there's a problem. There were giants. The sons of Enoch, who is the great-grandfather to uh, Goliath. They're there in the land. So they're terrified of these giants that exist in the land. So the 10 of the 12 spies come back and say, look, the land is beautiful, but there's giants. And compared to us, we are like grasshoppers. I mean, we are teeny tiny compared to these guys. Now, for two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they say, look, we can take it. I mean, with God on our side, who could possibly stop us? But the nation, the millions of people decided to go with and to listen to the 10 who did not believe. And as a result of the unbelief, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years they wandered around, aimlessly, struggling in a way that God had never intended for them to have to struggle, a 40-year death march as they wandered around. Now, this is what is being spoken of in these verses. As we continue in chapter in verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you... Uh, an evil heart of unbelief, in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called, today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it was said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion." And so we have now in these verses the second of five warnings found in the book of Hebrews. The first warning we found in chapter 2 last week, verse 3, where we were warned not to neglect so great a salvation, not to neglect the salvation, the salvific work of Christ Jesus, that in fact neglecting it for all of your life, refusing to believe it, leads to uh, complete outer darkness. A terrible warning sign for any that want to reject or to take lightly the salvation of Christ. The second warning, though, here in verse 12 says, Beware lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief. Unbelief is the second warning. That unbelief, in this unbelief, is actually what we notice here a battle that takes place daily. There's a reason why, two times in these verses, the word today should be highlighted in your Bible. And I believe that's because unbelief is a challenge for us every single day. It is a battle we have to fight not only daily, but it, there's also an idea of immediacy about it. It is an immediate an urgent need because the reality is all we have is today. All we have is right now in this moment, life is so fleeting. And it is true that God is long-suffering. He is very much that. And yet in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, we are told that um, now is the time for salvation. That the day of salvation is today. And so we see this idea of immediacy that goes along with unbelief. Because as this, as this cancer of unbelief spreads throughout the camp, All that Israel could see as they stood there right on the very verge of what God had promised them was their own inadequacy. All the ways that they didn't stack up. All the ways they didn't have it together. They weren't big enough. They weren't strong enough. And because they could only see their inadequacy, they completely missed God's inerrancy. He is perfect in every way. And if he says to go, that he will take care of you, his word will stand. He will. He will take care of them. And so, as a result, they did not enter into the rest. Verse 16: For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And so, the question here is: who didn't get to enter into the land? Who are the ones who rebelled? It was all who who came from Egypt by Moses. His point is, in asking that question, uh, these people have seen the works that I have done. This is a question of faith. And, And faith, by definition, if you skip forward just a few chapters to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it's defined for us here. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the reality is we serve an unseen God, but the evidence of his work is all around us. It can be very visible, very seen. And the point of this is here are people who have been brought out of Egypt by Moses, but directed by God. And as they were in Egypt, remember, there were 10 plagues that they got a witness that God sent to the nation of Egypt, telling Pharaoh to let my people go. And do you know that each one of those 10 plagues went directly against one of 10 Egyptian little g gods? Each one of the plagues is directly tied to a different god that they would prop up and try to idolize, to try to worship. So what God was doing is defeating, knocking down every one of those false gods before the nation of Egypt and making it clear to the nation of Israel as well. And here's the danger in idolatry. Psalm 135, I think, sums it up best. Verse 17, speaking of idols, little g-gods, they have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths, but those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. The danger for the little g-god is that they are uh, blind, they are deaf, and they are dead. And for all those who follow after these uh, little G gods, these little idols that we allow to take our time and our resources and our energies, uh, here's what happens. When we prop them up above the true and living God, uh, we run the danger of becoming like them, blind and deaf and spiritually dead. We, we are dead because we have given ourselves over to these gods who are not gods at all. And yet as the nation of Israel is brought out of Egypt, delivered from a picture of the world, they are brought through this by two things, um, by blood and by water. The blood of the lamb sacrificed on Passover. They were able to escape. And then the waters uh, parted by Moses at the hand of God. They were delivered out of the world by these things. Do you understand that you and I are delivered the same way? By blood and by water. The blood of the perfect lamb of sacrifice. Our propitiation, the payment that turned away wrath. Who that when they pierced his side, what poured forth was blood and water from his side. Birthing fluids. We were reborn at the hands of Christ. Christ at the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. So by the blood and by the water, we are delivered. And here's the pattern in the Christian life. It is out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into abundance. Out of the world, through the wilderness, into abundance. And I want to point something out theologically that I want you to grasp. Is the entry into the promised land, the crossing of the Jordan, is not crossing into heaven even though those old hymns we used to sing, they were beautiful, uh, they just weren't biblically accurate. The picture is us crossing over the Jordan into the abundant, spirit-filled Christian life that we are to have right now. It is a right now life. And how do I know it's not a picture of heaven? Because what's in the promised land? Giants, walled cities, battles. uh, Those things are not in my God's heaven, by the way. (laughs) Not at all. But this is a picture of being delivered into the abundant Christian life where as we come into contact with these giants or walled cities, what we realize is God didn't turn the nation loose and say, good luck, boys. He said, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to actually clean this whole mess up before you ever even have to fight. I'm going to be the one fighting your battles for you. And they were no match for God, for those who believed. As we continue in verse 17. Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So verse 19, we see that they could not enter the rest in, in because of unbelief. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So, who didn't get the chance to enter into the promised land? I mean, surely it was uh, idolaters and murderers and fornicators and people who didn't do their morning devotionals. Surely all of them are the ones that don't get entered into the promised land. My scripture says it was for those who did not believe. One reason and one reason only is given that's keeping us from the abundant Christian life, from the rest. Not believing in God, not taking him at his word, prevented them from being able to rest. But they cried out, these they are giants there, and I'm a grasshopper. We say the same thing when it comes to our challenges we see in life. These things are gigantic, I'm a grasshopper. And the answer is, yes, you are you, you are very small compared to these big problems. But our God is so much bigger. It's not even comparable to Him. And so lacking in belief, what happens in our life is it leads to turmoil and anxiety and unrest because we do not believe that God can deliver us from the things that seem so huge before us. If you think back to the very first plan, part three of Old Testament Bible time, uh, Joshua finally entering into the promised land in chapter 6 of Joshua. And as he goes into the promised land and leads the nation in, the first place they encounter is the double-walled city of Jericho. Not just a city wall, but a gap between the outside wall and the inside wall. I mean, there's no way the thing is, is impossible to penetrate. And so God gives to Joshua a battle plan of, I want you to carry trumpets. Really? that's the battle plan. We can't take a sharp stick. Maybe something we can poke somebody in the eye. I mean, anything? A trumpet. But here, you, here what you see is he was bringing faith. He was bringing belief out of the nation of Israel that he would deliver. And the double-walled city of Jericho was no match for the true and living God. There was no way it was going to withstand him. But the opposite side, the result of not believing is no rest, no peace, no deliverance from the thing that trips us up. We stay on the other side of the Jordan River because we're afraid of believing that God can have deliverance in this area of our lives. And so the question that I would pose to you this morning is what is it that you are tired of living with? Not who, by the way. Don't go down that road. What is it that you're tired of living with? What is the giant that exists in your life that you're so sure you're a grasshopper in comparison to dealing with this? You're so terrified to even have that conversation to go down that road, to to make that faith step, to put feet to your faith, that you're afraid that it's not going to turn out. Because in the middle of that, let me point out, uh, what you don't have is rest. Rest. You don't have any peace in that area. Here's what Jesus promised. In Matthew chapter 11. Most of you have this verse memorized. If you don't, I'd encourage you to and underline it. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His promise to us is to give us rest. And he was so willing He was so willing to stand behind what he said, he was willing to die for it. He was willing to give his very life to prove it. And all he's asking for us in return is to simply say, Lord, I believe. I believe what you're saying. I can't fully wrap my mind around it. I can't completely understand it, but I believe what you're saying. I believe I can have victory in this area that has kicked my butt for far too long, you can have victory in this spot. One last place in Scripture to go. I alluded to it at the end of service last week, but in Mark chapter 9, in this particular story, what's happened is a man has prayed for his son to be delivered from a demon that has tried to kill him over and over again. The, The young boy has been thrown in the fire He's been tormented for years. We're told from childhood, he's been tormented in this area of his life. And so the father comes to Jesus and he cries out for deliverance of his son. He couldn't see any way there'd be victory in this area. They've been years fighting this battle. And what Jesus says to this man is if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. If you can just believe, all things are possible. You can have an opportunity to have rest in this area. You can be delivered in this area if you believe. And I love the man's response in verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, Jesus isn't looking for us to have perfect faith, He's not looking for us to not waver, to not struggle a little bit with belief. What he's asking for us to do is lay it down and say, Lord, I believe. Would you help me in all the ways I don't believe? Help my unbelief. I've got this small, tiny mustard seed faith. Would you please use it? And he will be good enough to do that for you. And so I want to encourage you in that area of your life today, that relationship that seems like a giant, in that whatever it is that you are, that is stopping you from going into a life of abundance, the one that Christ wants you to be able to lead, a spirit-filled, spirit-led life. Always asking for is just a little bit of belief. And so Father, we thank you and we praise you for an opportunity to come into your house. Thank you, Lord, for this collection of uh, brethren, of holy partakers in the promise and Lord here in just a few minutes we're going to get the chance to take communion would you please Holy Spirit search out our hearts for all the giants that terrify us for all the ways that we are so burdened with a lack of belief that we are so sure that we're just such a grasshopper we can't possibly have victory in this area Father would you help us to be able to reflect on those areas Lord we we want to have this abundant Christian life that you've promised. There's not a one of us in here that doesn't want it, but the battle is daily. And sometimes we get tired. Lord, help us as we get tired. Even on a day where we got an extra hour of sleep, Lord, we still get tired. Father, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name.